Welcome to episode 94 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, I'm speaking to academic and author Dr Gordon Peake. Gordon works at the School of Regulation and Global Governance at ANU on governance and conflict in the Asia-Pacific region. He is an expert on and has lived in Timor-Leste and Papua New Guinea. Gordon is also a popular author and his book Beloved Land, Stories, Struggles and Secrets from Timor-Leste was winner of the 2014 ACT Book of the Year and People's Choice Awards. In the episode, Gordon reflects on his experiences living and working abroad. He discusses the challenges Timor-Leste has had following independence, the role of evaluations in our aid program, lessons for Bougainville and much more. We've included relevant links in the show notes, along with recent articles from the Dev Policy blog written by Gordon Peake. Also in the show notes are links to two upcoming events, the Power Licklick NGO Forum hosted by the Kokoda Track Foundation and ACFID's 2020 conference Oceania Connect in partnership with the Council for International Development New Zealand and the Pacific Island Association of Non-Governmental Organisations known as Piango. Definitely check those out. Enjoy the episode. Gordon, thanks for speaking with me. You've spent a lot of time not only researching, but also living in Pacific countries like Timor-Leste and Papua New Guinea. So to begin with, what's it been like living and breathing Pacific life, politics and development? No, look, it's, I, I really look back on my, when I look back on, on my career so far, um, I look upon the time that I spent in Timor, which was four years and the four years I spent in Papua New Guinea is largely being two, the two most seminal parts of my uh, my working life because it gave me a great experience it gave me a great insight it gave me a way into looking at aid uh, development the political economy within which aid is developed uh, is delivered that you would never get from sitting in an air-conditioned room in a in a think tank um, somewhere um, I heard Jackie DeLacy on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago a few months ago and she made the point and you, you said to her what advice would you give to anyone looking to start off with for a career in in aid, and she, I think her advice was go somewhere um, and uh, get it, get get your um, uh, you know get your feet dirty or get your feet wet or whatever the expression is. And I think you know she's one hundred percent correct. Um, it's really helped. It it, it was a, a wonderful experience personally, a wonderful experience professionally. But it also, as I said, it really gave me a different way of um, of looking at things. Um, I had so I had, and really two separate experiences and really two separate junctures um, that I was at in my life. So the first time I was um, was in Timor Leste, um, where I've had a long engagement with the country, and I, I think probably I will have continue to have an engagement for the country for the rest of my life. Um, I went there in two thousand and five in the most sort of peculiar, unexpected of ways. I was teaching at uh, Princeton University. I was teaching a course on post conflict reconstruction. And Princeton has a um, advantage that most universities in Australia don't have, which is it seems to have seem to have an unlimited supply of funding. Um, and so, what we were doing in the course was we were um, looking at uh, UN peacekeeping and how it worked. And instead of going to the UN in New York for a, for a one day visit, um, there was the funding that enabled the students to go to uh, a bunch of different places. So some went to Kosovo, um, some went to Sierra Leone. Um, I took a group of students to uh, Timor-Leste and I, we went there in November 2005. It was, um, the t- this would have been three years, three and a half years after Timor-Leste became 
independent. And I just remember this kind of Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel of a, of a place. It was very, it seemed very slow, certainly slower than New York was. But there was also a sense of mission accomplished, job well done. Um, we met some of the Timorese political leaders. We met the head of the United Nations mission. We had um, met the, uh, I'm str- I can't remember his name. He was the Pakistani, he was from Pakistan. He was the head of the United Nations police. And at each meeting we basically went into, um, everyone said, uh, what a great job we're doing. Um, everything's great. You know, we're going to hand it all back to the Timorese in 2006. Um, and I remember those students came back when they, when they wrote their report. They sort of indicated that maybe all in the garden wasn't as rosy as in these, um, these sort of glowing reports that, were, that, were, that we were getting at the time. They raised questions about the strength of the Timorese institutions. Um, they talked about the political economy issues that, they, that they'd heard. And it was really quite a pre- uh, perceptive um, report from memory. Fast forward to 2007. And all those good news stories that we were hearing um, from uh, United Nations and from the Timorese authorities, um, you know, had a very hollow, hollow ring to it then. Um, in 2006, uh, the Timorese, some of the Timorese institutions revealed themselves to be nothing much more than the, than, than the uniforms or the buildings. Um, the police started shooting at the army. The army started shooting at, at the police. Um, 150,000 people were uh, displaced from their homes in what the Timorese called um, the crisis. Um, and I got offered the chance to go back in 2007 to um, do a, what I still think was a really useful exercise, and I wish we would do more of it in aid, which is to look five years after a project is finished and see what happened. The purpose of this project was to look at what the money that had been given to Timorese veterans um, in 2001, 2002, and see how they, were, how they were using it. And I returned to a completely different type of daily. I remember when we flew in, we flew in from, uh, from Bali, and the whole of Timor looked as if it was covered, Delhi looked as if it was covered in snow. And it wasn't snow, it was the tents, because that housed all the internally displaced, um, displaced people that were, that were there. And there's 150,000, as I say. And so I did the project, and the project really sticks in my mind for the, the poignancy of the testaments that we got from Timorese veterans. They would say, you know, we fought all this time. We're not seeing any of the benefits from, from independence. Um, and so I finished that project and really for kind of want of very much else to do. I ended up staying there for a little bit longer. I got a job working with the United Nations for a bit. And then I ended up getting a completely unexpected phone call one day from someone who was working for the Australian Federal Police in Canberra. Um, he had, earlier on in my career, I'd written a bunch of articles about police reform. So this is sort of lesson to everyone that people do sometimes read um, academic articles and policy pieces. Um, and I, uh, he offered me a job with the Australian Federal Police. So I think, I mean, you better get your fact checkers to check this, but I believe I'm the only non-Australian to have ever worked for the Australian Federal Police. And I worked for them for three years. I had a wonderful um, time. I was the advisor to the uh, East Timorese Minister of Security. Um, and I think there wasn't a, I mean, I've written, a, as I write in the book, there wasn't a day that I spent that I didn't find something interesting, um, something that I find, and the sense that the past was not past, and the sense maybe that the kind of international state building effort in which I was involved in wasn't really getting, you know, it wasn't really fully kind of reaching to all the parts that the Timorese uh, political economy seemed to be working on. The most important thing that happened there, though, was I met my wife. 
Um, I, my wife is uh, Suzanne, who works, was working at the Australian Embassy in Dili. Um, and so we met each other there. Um, we uh, got married there. Um, we just looked at our 10-year, we just celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary. Um, and we have a, that sense of connection with the place, but also our, our first son um, has got an East Timorese name. His name, full name is Charles Murak, M-U-R-A-K. And Murak in Tetum means a precious, priceless treasure, which is what he is. So and I've been back to the country you know, many times since. And I think, I'm sure my experience, but I think in many ways my experience is informed by that. PNG was also a time that was a really seminal and really important to me um, in any number of respects. Um, and I came to it sort of by accident. Um, in a way, as I said, my wife was an Australian or is an Australian diplomat, and we went on a diplomatic posting to Zimbabwe. Um, and one thing I could never figure out why I was when I was in Delhi or elsewhere on assignments was why diplomatic spouses looked so miserable. They looked as if they had nothing to do. They were grumpy. They were um, out of sorts. Um, and then I became a diplomatic spouse, and I totally understood because you lose all your role. Um, all your status. Um, you're often not able to work in the country. Um, you have to be seen and not heard in case anything you say um, sort, of, sort of ripples the, uh, the diplomatic fabric. And so after about six months, I said to Suzanne, I said, look, I just don't think I can, we can stick this any, any longer. Um, and I saw a job on the uh, website of Coffee International Development, which was implementing part of the Australian aid program in uh, Papua New Guinea. And the job had the best title. The title was Facilitator, Drawdown of Powers and Functions. Um, and it was one of these kind of very elaborate named jobs that often happen in, in uh, aid programs. And the purpose of the job was to help the Bougainville government um, think through how to, in the advance of the referendum that was going to happen, um, think through how they could uh, acquire extra powers and functions from, um, from the government of Papua New Guinea. So... I went and did, did that. I stayed up until uh, the referendum in the end of 2019, and I left the job um, then. Um, and again, it was just a wonderful experience because every, a lot of, and really what was, I think, the kind of the great blessing I've had in my life is to be able to kind of compare what's been written about countries with what the reality that you feel and see and can, and can touch. And... Uh, and so those are the two experiences there. So what's it, what's it been like? It's been wonderful. Um, should everyone try to do it? Um, yes, I think you get much more um, from sort of being in places than you do from, from just reading yeah. about them or working on them. You make an interesting point there that one of the great gifts of your career has been being able to experience places in real life rather than just reading about them. And that for me raises a question about the value of reports and whether we should read reports and whether they actually capture what's going on in a place. And it sounds like for Timor, everyone was patting themselves on the back and saying, job well done. And the reports probably reflected that. But in reality, there were a lot of problems. So with that in mind, what is the value of reports to our sector and should we read them? So I think it's hard to give a yes, no answer to that, to that question, but I'm glad you asked it because this gives me the opportunity to um, spruik a, uh, an event that I'm doing with the Law and Justice Community of Practice that's taking place on October 1st, which we're going to ask that very question. Um, this has always been a, something of real interest to me, um, is the question about who reads these things. Um, 
and actually who reads in general. I mean, so one of the interesting things I found in one of the, the kind of, you know, the Twitter conversations that we've been having is someone made the point, they said, like, just people don't read. Like, people don't, you know, it's not a, it's not a, it's, we shouldn't expect people to, to read. And when people do read, they might read it in a kind of cursory manner or in an incomplete manner. Um, the difficulty, I think, with reports for government um, and some of the work that I've been involved in has involved kind of evaluation reports or design, writing design documentation is that there are so many interests um, that are involved. Um, this play, thing takes place within a chapeau of uh, diplomacy and the need to have good uh, bilateral relations. No head of mission or no uh, diplomat or no official wants to be able to, wants something that will question that narrative. Um, that's, that's, human, that's, human, that's human nature. It's totally rational. It's totally understandable because, you know, promotions depend upon it. Um, the ability to win new contracts um, depend upon it. Um, and there's also a reason why diplomatic cables are embargoed for 25 years. And I often wonder whether the pressure to actually have a public report, um, which kind of this goes exactly against aid orthodoxy, but the idea that where you should publish what you, what you do. But there's, a, there's such a pressure, I think, totally rational, totally understandable to, um, to, uh, you know, to present a version of reality that will please your, the person above you. A book that I read when I was a teenager, and it still sticks with me, is a book called The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist. Um, and it's a book about uh, 19th century England. Um, and it's an argument for the growth of for the idea of social democracy. But the basic point of the book, the book is structured as a set of layers. Um, so the first chapter involves people complaining about their bosses. Um, and the second chapter, and you, you, spent, you read the first chapter, you think, oh, that, those bosses are really kind of bad news. Um, and then the second um, chapter shows the pressure that those bosses are under. And then it goes all the way up and all the way up. We're, they're all, we're all under pressure to present a particular um, type of, of reality. And, um, and so that's sort of, I think, in the policy space. In the academic space, I mean, I started my career as an, as an academic. I've gone, and I find that academic writing and the, type, the genre of academic writing it doesn't enable us to talk about things that people actually talk about whenever they get together, which is um, people and their personalities, their peccadilloes, their, um, their alliances, their relationships, um, their strengths, their, their weaknesses. Um, I think life is a human endeavor. Um, it's and we're all flawed in, in many different respects. And yet in academia and in policy writing, it's very, very hard to actually get across that kind of textured um, sort of dappled um, way by which we all, I mean, because life is complicated um, and getting the kind of complexities and the complications of life across in an academic report or in a policy report when there's so much pressure upon you um, is, uh, is really the case. I mean, you would find that from your work um, in kind of in, in media as well. Whenever you're in communications, you've got to present a particular version of um, of the reality that your client wants to present, it's really, really challenging to break out of that um, of that kind of public diplomacy perception where everything is going really well, yeah. everything is, you know, all partners are happy. It's, it, I think, it's, I mean, it's totally rational and understandable, but I think it means that the um, the end result is uh, 
is very few people, they, they, they read these reports, they, get the, they think that's not the reality that I'm actually facing. And so they don't, you know, continue. Yeah, it begs the question of how do we create a culture in the development sector where people are comfortable writing a report saying that something didn't go well? How do you make people feel safe to do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the kind of holy grail question. I think it's, you've totally hit the nail on the head with it. It's funny because a lot of management speak says, you know, you should be prepared to accept failure. And, you've, you know, if you look on LinkedIn, everyone's story is always about, oh, I failed and then I came back and I, I did something better. But in life, I've never seen anyone really um, be prepared to admit it publicly um, because you worry that you're going to lose face. You worry that you're going to lose status. Um, you worry that you're going to lose, uh, lose rule. I do a lot of work with a, a friend and colleague of mine at, at Regnet um, called Miranda Forsyth. So she was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, and her and I, I think, have the most, you know, I totally cherish my, um, uh, our, you know, the relationship that we have in terms of, you know, the writing that we're able to do. Because we're able to, to say, I don't understand that or I'm not clear on that or I don't think what I've written is very good. Can you, can you improve that? And that, that space to have those conversations is so rare to, rare to find. Um, and so, I mean, I think it is a really critical question for, um, for aid about how to do it. And maybe one way to think about it is to, is to stop us thinking that there is one answer. Um, that it should be like aid is good or like, you know, or should we do this or was that project a success? But to accept that um, aid delivery takes place within a complex ecosystem that we're not actually in control, um, in control of. I heard this, read this great analogy once about how aid programs think that they are um, in a greenhouse where you can control the temperature, you can control the water, you can control um, when the seeds are planted. In reality, aid programs take place within an ecosystem where you can garden as much as you want, but you can't control the weather, you can't control the, the rain, you can't control if someone's going to drive a car into the field, um, you can't control if someone's going to take the seeds off or plant different seeds or have a different idea. And so I think it's about really refashioning our sense in sense um, you know, our sense of uh, our place. I mean, we are not, we do not have a dominant role. And sometimes it's really, really hard for, for us all to, um, to accept that we're not in control of the environment. It's fascinating to me that you're clearly someone who's acutely aware of the challenges of getting people to read things. And yet you wrote a book, uh, your book titled Beloved Land, Stories, Struggles and Secrets from Timor-Leste is based on your time living in the country. So what compelled you to write the book? Yeah, I think you've sort of pointed out to how I'm a sort of massive contradictions in some ways because I, um, I, so what, what compelled me to write the book was a couple of things, which is one really, it's a sort of natural segue from the conversation that we've had. I was 100% sure um, I'm not 100% sure. I was doubtful that the academic writing that I was doing was, ma was making the kind of impact, quote unquote, that I thought that it was going to do. The policy reports that I'd been slaving over, I knew were going to go to a donor and would most likely be shelved or would most likely be filed. Um, but, uh, but people were busy and they were other projects had, had, you know, had mo moved on. And I really, I wanted to write a book that would be able to, to get people to want to read. So I wanted to, and I wanted to 
And I thought of the kind of books that I enjoy reading, um, books that kind of blend um, an author's perspective, books that blend um, travel, books that have a narrative and a kind of journey to them. Um, so, I mean, when I was younger, I was, I, well, I still like, still like the man's writing was, was Paul Thoreau, but there was a wonderful uh, Polish writer called Rudyard Kapuczynski who, who really deeply affected me when I read him as a teenager. And he went on these you know, travels and he sort of talked about what he was seeing. He talked about what he was feeling. Um, he talked about, um, you know, what was going on. None of it really sort of fit into an easy explanatory frame. Um, and I think of his writing, I think of, you know, the writing of someone like Norman Lewis, who I used to read a lot of, um, Michaela Rong, who's a, a beautiful British writer who blends that sense of um, the personal, the political. Um, and I also wanted to write something that I knew that um, could kind of get into all the things that I was seeing in Timor about personalities, about histories, about um, some of the decisions that were being made, about some of the hubris that was attaching to um, some, of, some of the work. Um, and I wanted it to be a story about people. And I knew that I couldn't write a policy report about people because that would get, that would generate consternation. Um, I knew I couldn't write a, uh, an academic book about people. Um, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to write something that really would be able to explain my love for the country to, um, anyone who was able to, to, to read it. And I wanted someone, you know, who was going to go into a bookstore, um, to pick it up and, and read it. Um, as well, I, and so that, that's kind of the book that I wanted that I wanted to write. I wanted people to read it and have an opinion about it. I didn't want people to write it and say like, "Oh, he's cut everything that I know that was going on out of the book." I wanted people to to um, you know to to to, to you know to, to find it engaging rather than to find it a chore. And I wanted to say to you on that, I remember back in uh, the beginning of 2015 when I did my first trip to Timor-Leste and uh, I was working on a World Bank project there. And wherever, whenever I go to a new country, I try and read some books about it beforehand. And I remember what a challenge it was to find books set in Timor-Leste. I know that your book had been published then, but I must have missed it. But it was just such a challenge to find books. And I think that there's so much value in creating new works of literature that is set in places that we're not familiar with, because I think literature can go places that reports can't go. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, and it's, uh, yeah, look, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, and I think that it's, um, it's probably a, a, a literary form, I think, that will still continue. Um, but it, it it was, but it's such a it's a different challenge to try to write a book than than write a report. I mean, first of all, you've got to write the you normally get commissioned to write a report, or if you write an academic article, it's within the context of academia. With a book, you feel like you're trying to you know sit you know swim the Timor Sea without um, without much assistance because you've got to write the entire book and then you've got to see if anyone wants to. Um, to um, you go go to publishers and see if anyone wants to acquire the book. So it's a hugely risky um, strategy. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm really proud that I did it. I've got, I mean, apart from my um, two children, it's my proudest achievement um, so far in in life. And um, and I'm really proud that seven years after it was published, it's still it's still in print. Um, it's it still continues to sell. Um, occasionally, I get people saying that they've read it and. Some people like it, and that's great, and some people don't like it, and that's great too, because it, it actually gets people um, thinking. Um, and I think that you know a, a good book should do three things. Um, it should offer a, an exploration into 
a particular event. It should get you something into the, you know, the author's mind, but it also should give the, the reader a sense of thinking, of thinking as well. So, um, so I mean, I'm, I'm pleased that it seemed to do all those three things. Now, before we move off the topic of Timor, I do want to get your thoughts on the current state of the country. Obviously, uh, Australia has been very invested in the development of Timor-Leste and has invested a great deal in, in overseas development assistance, and yet many of the problems Timor-Leste faces seem to be enduring and it's hard to know if any progress has been made. So where do you stand on, on the development of Timor-Leste? Uh, oh, these are these are good questions. Um, so you mentioned sort of Australia has been involved in the in the in the independence effort, and I think you know I'll just sort of break that down a little bit. I think Australians have been involved in the independence effort for a long time. So I mean, there's a there was you know during the eighties and nineties there was a continual sort of flickering flame of Australians of of people from Ireland um, of people from. UK from the United States that to preserve the cause of um, Timor Leste independence um, of this country that was that existed for for nine days but was snuffed out in the Indonesian occupation. I don't think the Australian government was necessarily supporting the cause of Timor Leste independence um, during that whole time. So Australia currently frames its engagement as being a quote unquote like a new chapter um, in relations. Um, but there's an awful lot of kind of darker chapters that are in this story as well. There's, you know, the, a long, you know, there already have been sets of books um, written about the, uh, the Australia's rela- uh, relationship over the, Australia's work over the Timor Sea. But I mean, Australia looked the other way in 1975, whenever the Indonesians invaded. The Australian Foreign Minister, Gareth Evans and Ali Atalas clinked um, glasses over the Timor Sea whenever they divided up the resources um, there. Um, the bugging of the Prime Minister's office in um, uh, Witness K, long-running saga over the over the, the the division of the Timor Sea. I mean, this continual kind of you know persecution, prosecution. I don't know what word you say, Bernard Kaliri. So I think that makes it really difficult for um, you know to, for a new chapter um, uh, to you know to take to take place um, because you've got you've got all this sort of history that's gone on. Um, behind it, but you're totally right. I think in saying that the, um, but also that the cha- the 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 work that Timorese did to get independence um, makes makes them, I think, understandably, justifiably proud um, of their accomplishments, and means that they don't aren't necessarily in the in the mind to take advice from uh, from from others that maybe might not have been fulsome in support of um, their cause all the way through. Um, there's an analogy I remember reading a book about Algeria where it said that the Algerians really, really did not enjoy, or did not, not enjoy is the wrong word, like were not receptive to taking advice on anything because um, very few people supported the cause of Algerian independence from France. Um, so these kind of colonial legacies and these these pasts have have echoes, have have ripples, um, and really I think continue to kind of impact upon bilateral relations today um, in a, a number of different ways. Now the point to kind of, sort of circle back to the point about about the is team related. You know, I think you said, you know, why are the statistics not as good as they should be? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really valid valid question. Um, of course, I mean, like everything you find with statistics, you can kind of play it around one way or the other. Um, 
I was reading last night um, the, the Human Development Report where it talked about the life expectancy rates in, um, in Timor-Leste and how life expectancy for an East Timorese has gone up by 10 years in the last 20 years. Um, so that's a, you know, that's a pretty significant um, achievement. Um, but I mean, there's other statistics that are much less, um, much more baneful and much more um, less something to, to get excited about, um, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the rates of stunting, I think, are over 50%. Um, there's a, uh, something, I think, called the wasting prevalence that's about 10%. Um, so, I mean, it is not an unalloyed good news story um, by, by any means. The other challenge, I think, is that if you look at where the Timor Leste government is putting its money, um, there's real questions, I think, that you can ask about whether, um, whether the allocations are going into the correct, uh, going into the correct um, places. You know, there are reductions, I think, in health, education. Um, in the 2020 budget, uh, I read a, a, a paper which said that just 1% was going to water and sanitation. Whereas you know more money was going on to um, prestige um, um, projects, so I think that's the real the, the challenge for, for for Timor, which is how does it, and it's a challenge that lots of countries I think face, which is how does it um, steward its resources for um, for generations to come, um, and I mean this is not a challenge just that Timor Leste has, uh, it's a challenge that Papua New Guinea has, it's a challenge that Bougainville might have at, at some point, it's a challenge that many countries and in oil-rich countries or all around the world have the resource curse about how to, you know, how to, how to do it. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll sort of finish this just thinking in an anecdote. Like, we went back on the family holiday uh, to Timor. My son went there, Charles Murak went there when he was three months old. He obviously didn't remember it, but he really wanted to go back and sort of see this country that, that give, him his, um, give him his name, you know, give him his very existence in a way. Um, and... Um, and it was really striking to kind of compare the Dili of 2019 that we visited with the Dili of 2007 and the Dili of 2005. I mean, by any objective criteria, um, it looked a happier, um, more bustling, um, more bustling place than it, than it would have been um, back then. I mean, there's this great Tetan word, rame, it means kind of excitement and bustle. Um, and there was lots of rame that was uh, Going on in in, team, in in Dili, and we went. We you know we, I, I wasn't there in order to do a kind of socioeconomic assessment of the place, but we we went off to a couple of places that Suzanne and I I went to in our in our courtship, I guess you could say. So we went up to a place called Malbisi, um, up in the up in the hills of um, Timor, and you know the roads were better. There was you know there seemed to be more you know money going around. There was um, uh, so I think you know the the trajectory of Timor is 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 good but certainly i mean there's lots of 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 dips um along the way and you, and you know as you said i mean the song statistics just make your make your make you weep yes it's interesting to contemplate the tens of millions of dollars that uh, australia has invested in oda in timor leste and to consider how those investments have been evaluated which is a good segue for us into evaluation it always strikes me how few long-term evaluations I see. It's easy at the end of a project to do an evaluation, but I see very few evaluations of project impact five years later. I think often it's because it's not budgeted for at the outset. Yeah, I think that's a real. I think it's a. I think it's a totally, mm. totally important point. Um, and uh, 
and I think, yeah, I mean, I just want us stopping you in order to reinforce it because I think it's really correct. Um, and also this sort of cycle that people are on is a three-year cycle. So it's like anything that happens afterwards, not really my problem. Anything that happened before, I can blame someone else for it. So sorry. Keep, keep going. No, no. I mean, that's that's my question is what's the danger of not doing long-term evaluations? Are we completely failing to grasp whether our projects are actually effective or not? Yeah, I, I think I think you've really... Again, sorry, I hit the nail on the head with this. Um, I mean, I can tell you about my experience of evaluating pr- projects and the challenges that, 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 came, that came with it. Um, so after I left, so when I was writing the, the Beloved Land, I realized that, you know, I couldn't, you know, I needed to kind of pay the Woolworths bill and the mortgage in some way. So I made a, um, I had, for a period of my career, I worked as a kind of short-term consultant doing designs and evaluations of you know policing and justice programs um in the pacific and you know, i did one in timor and um and it was you know it was, it was utterly fascinating the work but the, the model was this which is you get given a 25 to 30 day contract you get sent to country x in order to spend 14 to 17 days kind of running around asking the same questions that probably the people that had been two years previously um, were, were asked, you come home and you meant to write a report um, about the experience. And writing the report, as I was saying before, is really challenging because all the stuff that you hear, um, are not a lot of the information that you hear, which is rooted in um, uh, political economy issues, rooted in personalities, rooted in complexity, um, rooted in the need to have good bilateral relations. All the stuff that people talk about over a drink or over a cup of coffee is really hard to actually put in the official report. And then whenever you put the first draft in, you find, and of course the kind of contract precarity is snapping at your heels at, at this point because you don't get paid until you, their final report is accepted. Um, so you don't want to bite the hand that, that's feeding you by... Um, by, by, by doing the report, but I've never had an experience with, oh, I've had one experience um, where when you hand in the first draft that someone doesn't take grievous offense um, at even the most kind of soft-gloved um, critical observation or kind of being constructively critical. Um, and then I often wonder what happens to these reports. Um, you know, so I'll send you, I'll send, I've just written a blog about this, but it's got a linking to um, some of the reports that we actually got wrote, we actually wrote. And I mean, one of the reports was 80 pages, one of them was 130 pages, one of them was 150 pages. They were written in the most boring English. I often wonder who actually sat and read them. And I mean, whether they were ever used as the basis for decision making. I mean, one of the, one of the kind of interesting things that was on our that little kind of Twitter feed that we, um, that we were that we were on was that someone said um, the best way to influence a policymaker is to get to know them and to have a drink with them. It, you know, I, and that, that I think, I think kind of, you know, probably coheres with our, with, you know, what our experiences as well. Um, but I think that's really difficult to, um, you know, to do in a kind of formal, in a formal setting. But I do think there's a big question about how, how reports are, are used and my sense is they are not read that much because life is squelched is squelched out of them. Um, it's really, I mean, I, I read recently the the Royal Commission um, of uh, or another is it the Royal Commission the thing about the Ruby Princess, and what was interesting about that was that the the person doing it 
named names or you know named um, named kind of things that that were at fault. And what was really interesting about that was how many people really you know New South Wales Health or the Australian Border Force they all resisted um, asking being answered um, answering questions um, in the course of that thing. And uh, I mean, people who write do development evaluations have no powers of a royal commission, no inquisitorial powers to ask questions. Um, and I think it's a really big, big question that you're asking about um, about how to how these reports are used. And I, I do think framing, having a framing of the sense that we're working within a complex and a chaotic system rather than something that we can control is part of the way to, um, you know, to think it through. But again, that would then mean trying to stop this kind of omnipotent sense, you know, that there's often presented in kind of public diplomacy that everything's going, you know, everything's going really well. We're in kind of control of all these projects. So there's a real tension, I think, between a lot of the, the, the goals of, of, of some of these endeavours. Yes, I think there has been a real cultural shift in the sector in recent years from monitoring and evaluation to monitoring, evaluation and learning. And there's been a much greater focus on extracting those learnings from the project for the benefit of the next people that come along and do a similar project. But I suppose my question is how well are we actually embedding those past learnings into future projects? I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, and there's often a tendency to say, uh, well, let's, I think there's often a tendency to say, oh, that was, that was then, this is, this is now, we're going to do things, um, we're going to do things differently. And without really fully recognizing what 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 is required, and then I think there's often a tendency to say, "Oh, well, that that person didn't know as much as I as I know." You know, there's often this tendency. I think that that's human nature, um, as well. So, but I think you're totally right about learning um, as being, and how do you embed a culture of learning? And I don't know about you, Rachel. Like I've learned far more from my mistakes, and I've made hundreds of them than anything I've ever done well. I've, and how do you how do you create an institutional culture that is prepared to um, accept failure or prepared to acknowledge failure? So you know, back to the Ruby Princess, like good for Gladys Berejiklian for actually standing up and saying, um, you know, we did wrong here. You very very rarely hear um, politicians or, or public servants um, say, you know, no, we actually got it, you know, we actually got it wrong. Um, there's a there was a really good World Bank report about Timor Leste that I can I'll dig it out and I'll send you the link. But um, they they kind of came to the conclusion that their first ten years of programming wasn't that effective in in certain respects. And I remember thinking I remember reading and thinking two things like one that's probably pretty much accurate, but two like good for you for actually actually admitting it that you've actually not hit all your goals um, here. I've learned a lot more from my mistakes than anything I've ever done done properly. And my second book was a lot better than the first edited book I I did. And so, um, so, yeah. And that brings me to the last question I wanted to ask you, which is about your next book, which is on Bougainville. And of course, Bougainville is such an interesting source of geopolitical tensions in the region and and also domestically for Papua New Guinea right now. So we could talk about this for hours, but I will ask you instead, what is your outlook for the future of Bougainville? Yeah, this could be a very long conversation. We might need to we might need to do it another time. So, uh, so the book is partially about Bougainville. It's not exclusively about Bougainville. The book is about um, my journeys with three, I call them ghosts, um, 
three writers and um, academics um, that have come before me in Papua New Guinea. Um, so one of them is a uh, someone who I think is the best Australian writer. He's not acknowledged much as he, as he should be, a man called Randolph Stowe, who to me wrote one of the best books about New Guinea, which is called Visitants. Um, so it's, a third of the book is about my journey with, um, with journeys with him um, and his ghost and his legacy. And a third of the book is about my journeys with an Irish um, romance writer called Beatrice Grimshaw, who lived in Papua for 40 years. She was a kind of consigliere to the, uh, to the Australian administration. In, in present day terms, you would call her a monitoring and evaluation consultant because she actually did a lot of, um, you know, writing reports for the Australian government. And she, and she, uh, her reports, when you read them, are a lot more um, spicy than uh, the ones that you get away with writing today. But a third of the book is set on, on Bougainville, and it, the, the ghost that I look for is, a, is an Oxford anthropologist where, where I studied um, called Beatrice Blackwood. Um, she went to Bougainville in the late 1920s in order to, quote unquote, you know, find a place um, where there was no white people, end quote, and go and live there because anthropology at the time was all about trying to find supposedly kind of pristine, unsullied societies and then trying to work through their uh, cradle to grave um, examination of um, everything. So it's basically about, about my efforts to, um, to follow her around and see sort of what her legacy is. And I mean, Beatrice Blackwood in 1929 said, um, was talked about how Bougainville was composed of was effectively stateless, um, but um, in terms of there was a lack, there was no administration. Um, but you talked about the village-based nature of, of, of Bougainville uh, society. And I'm using her to kind of compare. In, there's no way that if Beatrice Blackwood kind of got up from the grave today, and if someone told her that 90 years later, the place that she studied would have had an independence referendum, she probably would have gone back to the grave because she just couldn't have conceived it um, as being... Um, likely to happen um and so that's a, so it's a largely sort of my efforts and to look after her but i so what's the future for bougainville um i'll give you the kind of glass half full and then i'll give you the glass half empty um uh approach but before i do i think it's important to, to talk about what is meant to happen next um so in 2000 so in 2019 uh 97.7 of bougainvillians on a big turnout and voted in a referendum on their future status. Um, and they voted for independence in 97.7%. One of the uh, things that is meant to happen, but one assumes then independence is, gonna is ultimately gonna happen. Um, and that's not the case because the, the, the Bougainville Peace Agreement is quite a complex document, it's a complex and contingent document, and the referendum is non-binding. And what is meant to happen after the referendum is that the, the two parties, um, as in the Bougainville government and the Papua New Guinea go government are meant to um, consult each other about in order to develop a new political framework. And then the results of that is meant to go to the Papua New Guinean parliament for final decision. And there is no deadline on that to happen. So it could happen next week, it could happen next month, it could happen in 20 years, you know, so there's the absence of a deadline makes it difficult to know what's going to happen next. The other issue is, is that the sheer amount of um, issues that would need to be worked out in a divorce agreement or a separation agreement or in a kind of new living arrangement um, between Bougainville and Papua New Guinea is huge. 
Um, like would a Bougainvillian have to have a passport to travel from Bougainville to from Buka to Port Moresby? Um, would a Bougainvillian be able to get health services in in um, in elsewhere in Papua New Guinea? And I don't think it's too difficult a um, or not too difficult, too much of a stretch of a, of an answer to to compare it to Brexit. I mean, I'm from Northern Ireland originally. Um, the there was a and just like, there's, just, there's a large East Timorese community in Northern Ireland, and one of the sort of sticking points, or one of the questions, was um, you know whether they'd be able to continue to, to come to come in. But to make the deal between the European Commission and the United Kingdom on the issue of Northern Ireland, on the issue of the border, which is one of the sticking points, involved thousands of public servants working on that issue. Bougainville has 400, 500 public servants. Not not all of them are necessarily you're going to find them in their offices um, on each occasion. Um, the sheer amount of work that is required in order to kind of disentangle, like disentangle or um, create a new relationship is going to be really, really, um, really, really large. Um, and there, to me, there doesn't seem to be a lot of kind of acknowledgement of that of that effort. Um, I mean, you know, I mean. And the the preparation and the work that's going to be required in order to do it properly. So, I mean, like you and I are having this podcast um, today, like you know, I had to prepare a little bit. You had to prepare a little bit. That's a tiny amount of work compared to the effort that's going to be required to um, set to to do this separation. I don't. I don't think anyone has really sort of worked through um, what is the, the the extent to which it's going to be required. So the. The glass half full for Bougainville is that Bougainville has a number of important natural resource assets. It's got the Panguna um, copper mine, which has got, you know, I think it's like something like $60 billion worth of um, uh, confirmed reserves under the ground. It's potentially got access to a number of, um, a, quite a large uh, fishing area. 30% um, of the world's tuna catch comes from Papua New Guinea, um, potentially 30% of um, of Bougainville's waters are in, are could be um, considered to be the, in that in that amount. That, so then, but then you've got the kind of resource curse challenge that comes with um, you know that we're talking about with Timor Leste and also with Papua New Guinea as well. I mean, how do you build strong institutions in such circumstances? Um, and the mine, which was the the the, the detonating cord for the for the conflict, um, is resolutely shut. So there's lots of complications of kind of getting access to those. Um, Resources. The glass half empty view is that all states, all, all administrations, or all governments um, need to, you know, be able should ideally be able to pay their own, pay their own way. I mean, one of the reasons I think, you know, I was thinking about that question about that you asked about Timor Leste and why does Australia not, um, you know, why, why can we not sort of influence development efforts? Is that Timor Leste has got a huge amount of money in the bank? It's got like sixteen billion dollars, probably more than that now in its oil and gas fund. Um, Bougainville brings in about $2 million per year off its own revenue currently. The, go the government is dependent upon um, grants from the government of Papua New Guinea, which pays for kind of public servants' salaries. But there's no way that you could... Uh, currently, it's not a financially going um, proposition. The other difficulty, I think, for Bougainville is that... And the, their presidential elections are on at the, at the minute is, is one of the things that requires independence is that for other states to recognize you as being independent 
Um, so, I mean, I could declare myself independent in my house in, in Canberra at the minute, but no one's, no state is likely to, um, um, you know, to recognize me as such. And there's been a definite lack of appetite from states within the region and from, you know, states anywhere in the world to kind of recognize or support um, Bougainvillian uh, independence. And so I think that's going to be a real problem um, for them going forward. But I mean, I, I can't see a, an easy um, or a clear or a concise or a simple kind of solution to, to, to the issue. I think, I think, but I mean, my personal sense is that Bougainville and Papua New Guinea are going to kind of flop around having um, talks about talks and meetings in Port Moresby for the next, for the conceivable future. Um, I, I think it's hard to conceive that those two governments working alone will be able to make an agreement um, that'll embody the, the complexity of the arrangement because it is a deeply complex political settlement. It is deeply complex, much like a lot of the topics we've discussed today. Thank you, Gordon, for your time. That was episode 94 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next week.